0: Andy Williams is managing director of the newly opened L.A. office at Outpost VFX. We discussed his beginnings in the visual effects profession, starting at Dive post-production, supervising digital intermediate workflows of features. As part of his responsibilities now at Outpost, he describes how work is divided amongst the company's offices in the U.K., U.S., Canada, and India. He also describes how production tax rebates largely determine which outpost location become the lead site on each project the conversation concludes with some general thoughts on the kinds of future technologies and talents the company is investing in andy williams welcome to the globe screen podcast thanks for having me so i guess give us a little bit about uh an introduction of yourself and your background Sure,
1: so uh, currently I'm working as the managing director for Outpost VFX in their LA studio. Uh, in the LA studio, we've been working principally on, uh, on episodic work. We've been doing a lot of work on the Star Trek series and, the, uh, and most recently, the most recent season of Westworld. Um, the company as a whole has offices in Montreal, in the UK and in India. And, uh, I kind of fell in with those guys after I left d um, and DNEG is kind of one of the, one of the largest visual effects companies in the world. Um, I think they've won something like five of the last seven Oscars or something for visual effects. It's a, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty astounding company. Um, and prior to that, I worked at a, a few other visual effects houses. And prior to that, I worked in, uh, doing work in, uh in DI. Uh, before that, I was in reality television long before that. I did commercial work in there somewhere. So um, my trajectory to the visual effects space is a little bit probably unconventional, um, but yeah, I think that speaks to where I am now.
0: And and where, where'd you grow up? So
1: I grew up in kind of central northern New Jersey, and then I went to college in Philadelphia and then when I, once I got to Philadelphia, I kind of settled it in there and, um, you know, was just trying to scrape together any sort of a career in something production related. And so I, you know, kind of had kind of a strange path of starting and doing like educational documentary work. And that led to reality television. And I did a lot of pharmaceutical videos in there. And. It was, you know, it's just kind of, it's kind of being kind of a second or third tier market. It was just kind of a place where you kind of did whatever was on offer. And, um, yeah, but it was great. I love Philadelphia. It's, it's, it was a wonderful place to live and, and to kind of grow up, you know, once I, from college onward.
0: Nice. And did you know from a young age that you wanted to be involved in production in some sort of capacity? Definitely not. <laughs> um, you know,
1: I I went to college. I majored in communications, which was probably about as broad uh, uh, a subject area as I could as I could think of. You know, I, I went to college without any specific trajectory, and when I got to college, I was at the time I was really into music and I was playing in bands. And by the time I graduated from college, my only objective really was to find a job that was going to allow me to live in West Philly and continue playing in bands with my friends. And um, it just so happened that I did an internship in my senior year of college. And by the time I was graduating, they were crewing up for some small project and they had a kind of entry level position for, I think it was $300 a week um and uh i don't know it was enough for rent in west philly so i uh i took it and that just kind of put me on a long and winding path
0: yeah that um sort of similar to myself i started video editing at a company in high school when i was in high school Uh, every day after work got paid five dollars an hour doing like you know linear editing on weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like, like that. like tape to
1: tape machines kind tape-to-tape, of a thing
0: exactly yeah I, but i loved it you know yeah and and from we had talked on the phone i guess you were into hardcore music and i was also into hardcore music so just you know being working every day after high school i spent like all my money just on records and going to shows on weekends at places like cbgbs and all that stuff so for me it was like perfect
1: Yeah, I think it was a similar thing for me. I think, I, you know, I started working summers probably after my freshman year of high school. I think I always had a job through high school for exactly that reason. Like it was you just wanted to go to shows, buy records, make sure you had enough money to scrape together to buy the next skateboard deck, uh, all that stuff when, you know, all through high school. So, you know, you just kind of got as industrious as you could as a kid with limited options as far as you know working jobs but I had I had a bunch of like crazy jobs even through high school to do that
0: oh so I was never into skateboarding but one of my favorite documentaries of all time is Dogtown and Z-Boys yeah yeah those guys were my heroes for sure when I was when I was coming up it was uh yeah
1: it's a long time ago, geez. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, even the documentary is like 20 years old at this point. I know, yeah. I know. I remember,
1: And I remember when it came when it came out, I was like, God, all this stuff is so long ago. <laughs> and now it's just, you know, ancient history.
0: Yeah, I, I just recently watched the documentary again and it holds up so well. It's just such an interesting story.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's um, Stacey Peralta made another documentary about the Bones Brigade, which was like those guys were kind of, our, you know our contemporaries and through the, like the mid and late eighties of when the, and those guys, Tony kind Hawk, of, and all those guys, yeah, those guys kind of laying the groundwork for what would become the you know the kind of the template for using video to promote this like really kind of esoteric interest that all of these kind of outside kids had, and um, it's just like really interesting to watch that film and kind of see kind of, kind of see the people behind something that was, you know, probably a little bit opaque and seemed so far away being like a 15 year old kid in Edison, New Jersey.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, so then how, how did you really first get into VFX? Like, what was the, really the turning point for you to go from production to VFX work?
1: Yeah, so I did, I did a lot of stuff in physical production coming up as a a producer, I I did a tiny bit of editing, but I, I, my very first jobs were kind of like scheduling these small crews, um, these small video crews, ENG style crews to go out and shoot stuff, whether it be for, you know, corporate video or educational documentary stuff. Um, And so... By the time I, I worked for, for, for that company, that first company, for about four years, and it was such a small company that there was tons of opportunity because there was just, um, you know, there, there weren't enough people to do the number of various jobs. So you did a little bit of editing, maybe did a little bit of, I did on location sound work. Um, I did a lot of booking of the crews that we hired and that sort of a thing. And then as like the reality television thing kind of started to explode a little bit, This would have been in like the late 90s. There was a company in Philadelphia that had a contract with Discovery to do all of these shows. And they did like a wedding story, a makeover story, baby story, like all of these like TLC Discovery shows. But what that what what happened when I was there is I fell into post production and I started managing the delivery of all of those shows. Um, And so I kind of gotten out of the physical production part of things. And then after that, I fell in with a large post facility in Philadelphia. It was a large regional post facility that uh, was called Shooters, and they had a they had a need for people to manage projects. And what happened was in the it was in like the mid aughts. There was a convergence of, uh, you know, of HD, and as HD kind of became a standard, it also opened the 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 bridge between stuff that would have been done for broadcast and stuff that would have been done for film or for broadcast television and that's when those like earliest days of doing digital intermediates started and as that company was stepping into that space they were also getting approached about providing visual effects services to accompany that picture finishing work so we were working on you know, a lot of independent films at that time, which was great, because that's kind of where my interest was. And it was it was a really great thing to be a part of. And then, um, yeah, and then the visual effects thing kind of took hold and became a thing of its own. And as that company grew, I just happened to be there as the guy who learned how to manage it.
0: And, and kind of off we went. And so I guess, earlier in your career, you worked uh, frequently in the di workflow of features is that is that accurate
1: yeah yeah so we were um the very first di's that we did you know they were for projects that shot on film and then we would transfer that film to once there was the hdkmsr format which was able to hold a a wider color space we were basically scanning all of that film to hdkmsr and then we would rebuild the, the film, we would reconform the film in, at the time, a discrete um, uh, smoke system. Actually, I think we started in fire and moved to smoke. But you know now you had uh, a, an editorial tool that was able to retain all of that color space um, and with limited compression so that you could ultimately do all of your film grading. We were using a DaVinci 2K at the time. And then we would take that and push that back out to uh, to a print, and uh, you know we'd like I say we were doing that for a lot of a lot of independent films at the time. As like all of those new kind of uh, higher end digital cameras started coming out. So when the Red cameras came out for the first time, and the area the early versions of the Arri Alexa and all of these kind of like high end digital formats. Now you know once you got past having to shoot film in order to get that higher resolution image, um, it just became a more accessible thing to a lot more filmmakers.
0: That makes sense. And how how is it really? I'm sure it's evolved so much over the years. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's just um, I'll let you speak about that, I guess.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, so when I look at how things were done in the mid aughts to the way that they're done now, it's not so dissimilar. I mean, one thing is that almost no one shoots on film. It's interesting because Westworld still does shoot on film actually. Um, But as the, uh, as the delivery target now moves to 4k for uh, just about everything, people are now capturing on cameras with file formats that are that much more cap uh, capable of capturing a, a wider color range with less compression, and so now you have a lot more data to push around. But at the same time, you know, at the time we when we ended up using Resolve, probably by two thousand seven, two thousand eight, Resolve is still kind of the standard tool that people are using to conform and color their picture finishing yeah, um, the, it's they're, they're, a great yeah it is and it's and it, the thing that's great about it is that you know you, there's a there's there's a free version of it you know there's a there's a very accessible way to learn those tools in 2007 the first resolve that we have it was before black magic even purchased resolve um, it was a davinci product and it was, you know, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to own a resolve. It was bonkers.
0: Yeah. I'm, I mentor film students through a program called Film Connection. And I, and I kind of, I always talk about things like that. I'm like, you guys can't take for granted some of the tools that are at your fingertips because some of these things were just unattainable before. Like, you know, when I started video editing, even for example, I was messing around and, you know, doing, going from tape to tape just doing client work, but I had a boss that was in the next room that basically got, you know, almost as a hobby was just spending all of his time really like using some of the first nonlinear kind of like at the time, at least not the first, but you know, like the first that consumers, I guess, could buy or whatever, you know, and it's sometimes it would take a week to render (laughs) just like, Oh, it's bonkers, right? (laughs) I know
1: it's crazy. It's crazy to think about like what that evolution was. I mean, when I, so I graduated from college in 1995 and I, I walked into a company that had just bought their first Avid, which was this insanely expensive thing because all of the hardware that it ran on was proprietary and, and all that. And, um, and you know, and what it took to learn and to support and all of that to you know the way that file management worked at the time, it was all quite complicated. And then you know, fast forward maybe like six or seven years, and Final Cut comes out, and everybody in the world can access it. And it's it's you know it doesn't have as robust a database as as I had, but it gave everybody in the world an opportunity an opportunity to learn how to be an editor. And I think that just having that kind of democratization of the process, I think it opened a lot of doors for a lot of people.
0: Um, Undoubtedly. Yeah. yeah, There's a lot of, there's a lot of feature films, documentaries that came out directly as a result of that, that just would not have been made. I think I was, did you ever see that movie dig by Andy Timner? Yeah. 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 Really good film. And I just remember Seeing that, you know, how she was cutting the thing on Final Cut at around that time and, you know, like exchange, you know, sort of remotely working with another editor, like really sort of cutting edge at the time in a way that wasn't able to be done before that.
1: Yeah. And I think that it was, it was, I mean, the, the late 90s were really exciting in that way because everything that was happening where there was this acceptance that digital filmmaking could really have value, you know? There was, you know, the idea that like even, you know, you think about silly things, I don't know what year it was, maybe like 97 when like Blair Witch Project came out. Like the fact that things like that could get, even get made, let alone become massively popular. It was just a very exciting time. And I think that as someone who came from that world of like independent music and like a a DIY kind of work ethic, all of a sudden seeing all of these filmmakers like take that same approach by virtue of having access to tools that they began to push further than maybe they were ever meant to go. Um, I don't know. It was just, it was a really exciting time.
0: Absolutely. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> There's something I was going to say. Um, yeah, no, no, totally. I mean, that's that's kind of how I got going. I, I remember buying a Panasonic DVX 100B and I was just sort of filming everything. And I sort of embraced the fact that, hey, this is gonna be, you know, just DIY style. This is gonna be rough around the edges at first, but I'm just gonna keep going and refine the process. And, you know, that's honestly how it's been ever since.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, when we talk about, when we talk about skateboarding and stuff too, I mean, I think that that was, I, I, I can't tell you how many people that I've met in the industry that started shooting video you know of skateboarding i mean it's just like it's 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 this thing and then you know, you talk about
0: isn't how... that like jones got started by the oh, way Oh yeah he yeah i mean he was like
1: he was yeah skateboarding he was like he was like a um he was both like a bmx and a skateboard guy from what i understand but yeah he was he, and he was shooting he was shooting he learned how to shoot still photography and, and then he started shooting video and then he got into music videos and and all of that but yeah you know r- running a magazine but all kind of in that culture and i think that it's interesting how many people that i've met along the way who you know kind of catapulted from this pretty silly frivolous interest you know that they had that there was n- there would never be any like professional application of this thing. But as the tools evolved, and as even, you know, skateboarding became, you know, rose in popularity and credibility. um, A lot of these people ended up finding a path. Um, It's been, it's just been really fantastic to see.
0: Yeah, no, it is, it's, it is actually really interesting. Let somewhat like yourself, I also have uh, sort of had a circuitous sort of path into filmmaking. Like I, I always loved it, but I never thought I would pursue it just because my parents were Albanian immigrants and, you know, I'm first generation American. It just seemed like a pipe dream. It seemed like hey, that's not for us. That's, you know,
1: well, we got- I I had that too. I mean, you grew up on the East Coast and um I mean the idea of like I was talking to somebody today about this. The idea of like working in film. It just seems a million miles away, the idea of like, either working, I mean, and even growing up in the shadow of New York City, where we would go all the time as kids, because I grew up in New Jersey, the idea that you could work on films, or television shows, it seemed like something that was reserved for other people, you know, it just like that it was, you either needed to be a genius, or a scientist, or the most gifted artist in order to even, you know, pierce that, that, you know, that bubble. and it Or, or just really have away.
0: been born into it like nepotism into, or something. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, how, how do you, you know, you watch a movie and you, you look at the credits at the end of it and you think like, I don't, I don't know how to get there.
0: It's funny because now from getting into it, I've gotten sort of my sister into it. And she always had a passion for fashion and, you know, that sort of thing was taking like classes at FIT, you know, in the summers when she was in high school. And now she works in in costume design and she's an assistant costume designer on the HBO show Succession. And a cousin of mine. My cousin John from the Bronx texted me. He's like, Is that our Laura that's on the, <laughs> on the end credits? I'm like, Yep, that's our Laura on the end credits of succession. <laughs> so that's it awesome. it is funny how that happens, right? Well, it's uh, funny
1: and and when you talk about mentoring kids too, like every now and again I'll, you know, speak at a university or something like that. And and one of the things I always bring, you know, I always bring a credit role with me because the the thing that's so interesting about it is that about filmmaking in general is that there is a place for everyone in it like if you look at at credits and you know a lot of those titles roles mean nothing to somebody who doesn't necessarily know much about the industry but when you realize that it's like you know If you're a construction worker, if you're a cook, if you're an accountant, if you are, you know, an electrician, like any of these, any of these skills, like they are all needed in order to make a film or a television show. And they're, and they're, and they're necessary by the thousands. So it's, it's really, it's interesting that you, that, that, you know, I, or you could have thought it was just something for everyone else but has a sheer numbers game, you know, it's not like, it's not like getting into the NBA, (laughs) you know, it's, it, it is like, there is, there is a place for all of us, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing.
0: I I was thinking about that earlier and I was watching a project actually that you guys had worked on at Outpost, which, uh, the show, the offer. Mm
1: -hmm. And I was just
0: thinking about how much content there is right now. And there, there's even a need for, more content because they're streaming services and you know more so than ever before you know so there is there is more opportunity than ever before even from that sort of number standpoint yeah i think
1: there is i think there is and i think you
0: know even for those
1: of us who manage companies it is getting harder and harder to find people there are it's it is it you would think that people would be banging down our doors at every, at every turn, but even finding people who are game for taking some of those entry level positions, it's, it's actually harder than you would, than you would think.
0: So, so what is your sort of like a typical day like for you and how is it managing such an operation?
1: Sure. So, uh, since the company is UK based and the ownership of the company is the, in the UK, much of my morning is often taken up, um, dealing with uh, matters that relate to what we're doing as a global company. Um, There's a, there's a lot of projects that get shared across sites. Uh, There's a lot of forecasting that needs to be done in terms of resourcing uh, in terms of how we're going to divide and conquer work, where we find new business opportunities and how we're going to pursue that stuff. Um, There's a, there's a lot to, there's a lot to talk about and that kind of requires a constant conversations and vigilance over it. In addition to that, my, my day usually very quickly moves then onto the projects that are under our roof in LA. So I manage, uh, uh a production team, producers, coordinators, uh, internal editorial, uh, creative supervisors. So, um, it's it's sort of my responsibility to make sure that the projects that are running inside of our office are running well. That people are performing. That the company is making the margin on the shows that it that it needs to make in order to sustain itself. Um, I am working with our teams that do recruiting uh, to make sure that we are going to be crewed appropriately. Um, it's just kind of everything that goes into making a studio. The studio is about 50 people, um, which is relatively small in terms of by visual effects studio standards. Um, but just making sure that it's running as well as it
0: possibly can. And and I guess prior to Outpost, you supervised uh, VFX workflows for many projects at Dive. Do you share with listeners? Uh, some of the greatest technical challenges, and how you were able to overcome them.
1: Yeah, so I was at I was at Dive, and that's kind of where I got my start in visual effects. The, the challenge at that time was building something from scratch. Um, it was we started doing visual effects there probably in two thousand five, two thousand six, and at the time we trans we transitioned from using After Effects as our principal uh, compositing tool set to Nuke um, which at that time was kind of becoming the ubiquitous kind of standard for compositing. Um, and so the challenge with that was building a pipeline, uh, around that. And as that company grew and you had more and more artists, production staff, uh, you know, having to collaborate, we then had to put systems in place to help manage that work. Um, and we adopted Shotgun at the time, which is a, a kind of like a standard database that's used across the industry. Um, at the time, it was just kind of, it was pretty new. Uh, but the challenge was integrating everything that we were doing f- in, from a creative services standpoint into a functioning, nuts and bolts, production-friendly studio, um, because it it can become very chaotic very quickly. Uh, I I should say that the, the company Dive was born out of shooters, was a commercial house. And the way that people go about doing work, certainly then, was very different than how you would manage work and perform work on a scalable basis. So if you're working on a television commercial, and maybe you have 12 shots that require visual effects, well, now all of a sudden you're working on You know, we worked on After Earth and now we're doing 100 shots on After Earth or we're doing a television show that has 12 episodes. And now you're managing visual effects across 12 episodes with 12 different deliveries over the course of a season. And so the way that you approach that work, the way that you manage it, the way that you delegate tasks to teams of artists, it becomes different. And so that was that was really the challenge at, at Dive was was building something that would scale um, as it grew.
0: That makes sense. And and I get I guess now since you're at a such a global company, how do you sort of determine which projects are handled in the UK or Canada versus the Indian office or in the US? So
1: the way that it works, I would say the, the model is um, our India studio is really interesting because they perform support for all of the Western studios, which is to say they do all of our rotoscoping, camera tracking, and kind of paint and cleanup work. They handle that for all of the lead sites kind of whole cloth. We're in the process now of growing our compositing team so that they can work in support of the studios doing compositing and also building out our 3D capability there to do asset builds and that sort of a thing. Um, So they're becoming really, they're, they're, they're growing in size. They're actually, the India studio is the largest of all of our studios because it does support all of these kind of lead sites um and so that team is absolutely integral to the success and the future of our of our overall global operations in terms of who becomes kind of the lead site uh, where these projects are managed and supervised from a lot of that honestly is driven by the tax rebates that are in place in different territories so um it's it's gotten to the point where most studios when it comes time for them to decide where they are going to award work for various films or television shows because these tax credits exist in different territories there's always some expectation that they will get a return on the the gross cost of what they spend so for instance uh, Montreal is w- one of the most attractive tax rebate territories. I should say it's actually Quebec, but focused principally in Montreal. Uh, it's one of the best incentives that's available to productions, and the, one of the reasons that it's so attractive is that you know you can just you don't have to shoot in Canada in order to claim that credit. Any visual effects work that you do, no minimum spend. If you do it in Montreal you are eligible for what ends up coming out to be about a 40% tax credit. So if you're going for sure, it's, it's huge, right? So, you know, you could, you know, if you're going to, if you have a million dollars, you know, for to as a net spend, you actually can increase that by, you know, 40%. And it, it, so it's 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 a it's a massive windfall. And when you ta- start talking about the com- the fact that the complexity of visual effects at every level of show, whether it's a small television show to a large scale feature film, the visual the involvement of visual effects in every project now is only increasing. So when you're talking about you know I was at DNEG when the company did Dune. You know, and if you're talking about tens of millions of dollars being spent on these projects, you're talking about, I mean, if, to do that work not in an incentivized territory, you're just leaving so much cash on the table that you could put back into your film. And so um, so Montreal becomes very attractive. The UK has its own tax incentive, but it is tied to, um, in broad strokes, you, you really, kind of need to shoot in the UK in order to qualify for the UK tax incentive with visual effects. Um, and then California has its own incentive. Um, but again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one to take advantage of. You do, generally speaking, have to shoot in California um, and you have to go into a lottery and get approved in order to qualify for that. So it's a little bit trickier to qualify for.
0: Yeah, I feel like they make a lot of things trickier out there. I was it was getting That's permits true. for a project just to get permits for a project that I was producing there last year uh, was challenging. I, I guess just because there's so many projects happening, to, you know, I, I I'm I'm sure they're understaffed there. So, so. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm I think giving it's, them, I'm, giving, I'm giving them a the, the bit of the doubt. <laughs> I was going to say that's definitely
1: the, uh, that's, 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 that's very gracious of you to say but I mean, I think that, you know, I think it's tricky. I think that, yes, there's a lot of, there's, there's some hoops to jump through. There's a lot of red tape there. Um, California probably could do better for itself to make itself more attractive to production. So much production has left the state of California. Um, there's far more production that happens, um, you know, anything that needs to be location-based at this point is largely done in Canada or Georgia or other states. Outside
0: There's a lot in New York right now, too. Yeah, There's a lot happening in New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you touch upon something that I was going to mention that because traditionally, you know, when people think of VFX, they think of, you know, it, it would years ago at least be like sci-fi was the genre that would come to mind. But now it's like, even just looking at your website, you guys do everything from something that like Westworld, where somebody would imagine a lot of VFX, but to then other films like, or or in series, like the show, The Offer, that was about the Godfather and, or films like Summerland and Nocturnal Animals. So I think that's really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I think it it, it becomes a a bigger and bigger piece of things. And I think it becomes, there's, um... You know, show like The Offer, you know, it, it's a period thing. And so, you know, you can go and you can you can certainly shoot in New York City, but New York City today doesn't quite look quite like it did, you know, uh, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and so there's, there's work there to be done. Um, I think that even on the smallest of shows, there's always some need for it, whether it's some degree of, of cleanup. Um, there's, you know, any sort of, any sort of like clever gag transition, anything like there's just, there's always, there's always a need for it. I mean, there, there's, there's actually one of the more interesting developments in, in visual effects and how it is regarded. Um, you know, it used to be this something of a, it's something of a black box that was relegated to post-production that people You know didn't quite understand how it worked and there's certainly still some of that but even certain studios have now taken visual effects out of the jurisdiction of post-production and have actually moved it into production and because because if you were to look at the architecture of how uh how a film gets made and who's involved in it when Visual effects is one of the only departments that is there from prep until the final day. I mean, you know, uh, and not to discount the 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 importance of, of any department, but, you know, DPs disappear. Line producers disappear. Um, you know, like, you know, yeah, make a costume production designer disappears. And then there's still maybe another... There might be another six months, there might be another year and a half, but that visual effects supervisor has been there from the earliest days of prep and will be there as the person responsible for dropping in the final shots on that show. And the size of the teams that are necessary to do that work. you know, On the largest film, there are hundreds, if not thousands of names with multiple companies that are associated with doing that. And I think that it really speaks to where filmmaking is headed. And I think that visual effects, and certainly not for every, you know, talky little indie. I mean, you know, there's, 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 you know, it's not like these, the visual effects is going to dominate, you know, how those films are made necessarily. But I do think that you are seeing a greater involvement, a greater integration of visual effects with, Every stage of filmmaking,
0: I think you're spot on, and you touched upon something when you were talking about the offer that really, I think, people have to consider this that it's really enhancing the storytelling because to be able to recreate New York City, you know, you would have to do everything practically before, and there were, you know, doing a period piece just seemed almost unattainable, you know, and now I think things are starting to become more possible because of visual effects. That's, that's something to consider for sure.
1: I think so. And I think that, um, you know, I think that visual effects and it's generally the visual effects supervisor who spends the time on the set and is integrated from the very, very beginning. I mean, honestly, most visual effects supervisors that I've ever worked with will say, if you can do it practically, do it. If you can do if you can get it in camera, it will Almost always feel better. I mean, you can do you. You know, you can do anything with the right with the right budget and enough time. You can accomplish just about anything. But you know, I think visual effects will always say, "Man, if you can blow that thing up on set, blow it up. Like you know, if you can, if you can, um, if you can find a location, uh, if you, any of those things, like if you can." build if you can if you can get really good looking prosthetics like any of the things that you know we're called in to to work on but if you can do it in camera do it you know
0: that's interesting actually yeah that's that's interesting to think about i mean i'll tell you and i've, I've mentioned it on the podcast before i never fully appreciated the movie 2001 a space odyssey until i saw it on the big screen and then really seeing it on the big screen like, like holy shit! How did Stanley Kubrick do that fifty years ago? Like, right? You know, it's incredible, and it it's, still holds up so well.
1: It does. It really, really does. And I think that, like, you know, I mean, we can all, you know, I, th- I think we all, you know, we all have different feelings about the way different movies look. But I would argue that I, I would not say that any of my favorite movies are like visual effects spectacles. Like, I mean, it, you know, and you know, it's usually when films feel grounded with real camera moves, with, you know, things that even if you couldn't shoot them, you at least conceive of, um, you at least conceive, conceive of your visual effects shots as if you had to shoot them. I think it's one of the things that's really successful about Christopher Nolan movies. Is that like there aren't like a you know, he there's a ton of visual effects in Christopher Nolan movies, but all of them are based upon something grounded in photographic. And I think that
0: if you he shoots in film too, he does shoot shoot. in
1: film, he does shoot in film, and I think you know, um, but and I don't know, I just I think that there's something to the idea of like, you know, because, you know, if you, if you, if you watch Marvel movies, for instance, like there's lots of crazy camera moves, you know, things that are almost like, almost like animation, you know, and, uh, and aren't necessarily grounded in, uh, you know, in, in certainly in traditional filmmaking, let's say, right. And, and, and sometimes that can take you out of things. I mean, you can't argue with those films are wildly successful, but, you know, in terms of, I don't know conceptually and maybe now i'm just talking about taste i think that there's i think there's something nice to when visual effects are really there to enhance um and not necessarily to put itself in in front of the story
0: yeah i'm with you a hundred percent and i agree uh on, on the marvel thing there's there's certain marvel films that i like more than other other ones but I'm, i'm personally not I, I i don't i don't like when a film hinges on it too much you know yeah i mean and on, on the one hand you know if you're gonna have you know 10
1: superheroes having a knockdown drag out fight i mean i think it's okay to be a little bit you know just go full spectacle i mean you can, it's not exactly a, a grounded you know concept in, in that respect and i think you know have at it you know like have some fun um yeah. but yeah i, th- I mean I, th- I think about a, a lot of the projects that we work, work on it you know i can't tell you how often we're trying to talk people into
0: doing less in a way you know yeah and i mean you were talking about i kind of even like like small indie stuff and you know how it might not affect that but i think it has affected that even in the last 10 15 years for for example i remember being at Sundance like 10 years ago and watching this movie called another earth. You ever heard of that movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of like what I call like a lo-fi sci-fi movie, but you know, it literally takes, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sort of like a, a sci-fi movie that has the premise that there's literally another earth that mirrors ours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just like another shot of that earth Yeah. In the sky. Yeah. guy. And you know, it's not, it's not a vfx heavy movie but it was a really cool character driven piece and you know i think that's something that you know might have not been able to have been done 10 years before that for example
1: yeah you know my my i think one of my favorite ones that we worked on is um do you remember a uh colin trevaro's uh safety not guaranteed i don't know if yes you, loved if you that.
0: Saw that loved it with jake so, johnson and yeah uh, Mark uh, Duplass. Also, yeah. Yes. Mark Duplass, yeah that's right
1: and uh it was it was it was great because you know they had there's a whole story about like how they came to the ending of that film and whatever but they you know at the end they when they were like oh we have to make this thing disappear they didn't shoot it with that in mind um and so it was like this kind of a challenge of like how do we i guess i'm ruining this for anybody who hasn't seen this film but Spoiler they, alert! Yeah, right. Um, but they had to, you know, they had to make that time machine disappear from from that lake, and it was just like, how how are we going to do it? And it was just like, it was a really, it was a it was a fun project to go through. You know, like um, Colin was awesome, and it was like super collaborative in, in, in figuring it out. It was before he turned into like you know a guy who makes Jurassic Parks, and
0: that's yeah. I was going to say his career has certainly ascended over the years.
1: Right. Um, so but it was just like it was this really it was this great thing to be a part of. But it was a tiny little indie movie. you know. it was just it was just like a little piece at the end that helped tell the story. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great to be a part of something like that.
0: That's pretty cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed that film. See that that's a that's a good example of a film that that's really character driven, like a cool plot. And I thought the VFX just enhanced what happened. And it it was also so unexpected too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it was really cool. Yeah. 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 I I definitely remember like feeling that as an audience. Like, whoa, like that was awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was was fun.
0: So part of Outpost mission is to invest in new technology. And in general, that's one thing I do find fascinating about VFX in general, is it's just it's, it's on the cutting edge of, of filmmaking. Could you describe what kind of technologies that the company is bringing into the VFX arena?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the big, the big push now, well, there, there's a couple of things. There, there's a big push now to use kind of tools that had been kind of relegated to the gaming industry. And um, bringing some of those things to bear. So, um, you know, Unreal Engine, uh, Unity, those types of uh, real time programs that allow you to create imagery and not have to and be able to iterate incredibly quickly uh, without long render times and that sort of a thing. Like those tools are becoming much more common and the industry is still i think at a point where we're figuring out where those things plug in um there's a there's a thing called usd which is like a, a universal format for dealing with models with textures and uh and shaders and all that sort of stuff Try, the industry trying to bring itself to a place where it's not so much uh i should say where it is kind of program agnostic in terms of how it deals with assets. So, for instance, when we're working on Star Trek Picard, you have like multiple companies that are working with the same spaceships. So, you know, we we each are using these shot these these ships in different scenes, different shots and we're responsible for composing these these different shots. But all of us have different pipelines. So there's there's a there's a there's a movement in the industry to move towards coming up with a, a unified format where we are able to more easily pass things back and forth. And you know, the idea of being able to integrate these game engine programs to be able to, to then also use these use this kind of unified way of working, like the industry is trying to crack that. And so what we're all doing is using these tools in different ways to get them into our pipelines and to try to figure out what's the best use of these tools within our pipelines so that's i think that's one of the that's one of the big things that we're doing it's not necessarily unique to us but i think it it is a it's a direction that the that the industry is moving in
0: makes sense and the visual effects world sort of consists of of many outstanding vfx companies capable of delivering groundbreaking work how does outpost recruit some of uh some essentially talent to your company
1: yeah yeah it's one of it's one of the biggest challenges we've had and you know it, it's really outpost is a really interesting company because where this company was three years ago Compared to where it is now, speaks to a couple of things. I think that the company is really interesting in that it's like, it's in this like really ascendant space. You know, three years ago, they did their first big feature film. They did News of the World, um, Tom Hanks, Paul Greengrass film. And that was the first like big film that the company did that it did almost all of the work on that film. And it did, it did. Is prior to me joining them, but they they did beautiful work.
0: Yeah, in the pandemic, and and then now there's some serious credits. I mean, you guys have some really impressive credits.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so you know, so I joined the company during the pandemic, and the pandemic, you know, those first like eight to twelve months of the pandemic were very difficult time for the industry as a whole, for visual effects in particular, Um, and so the company was able to weather that and come out of that getting awarded a lot more interesting projects. And by virtue of that, really what the first step that it took, I think, was putting a really good global management team in place. So, you know, they found a number of people to run their studios who had certain pedigrees. That was like, that was kind of the first step. And then what they ended up doing is, you know, because because what you need to the way to attract talent is by having good projects, you know, being in a position to get awarded really cool work um, and then having a network of people to tap into to start drawing talent in, you know, because like any industry that's still relatively small people know each other and people want to work with the people that they know and like. And that's kind of the first step to putting together a really healthy core group of people who also have similar values. It's it's, so much of it isn't just about the project and what we're working on. And yeah, we're all going to get in the trenches and we're going to work 20 hours a day and it's going to be miserable, but Hey, we have each other, you know, Outpost kind of has this, this ethos, you know, Duncan who founded the company has this, this group of core values that you know it's funny because it could sound like some like very corporate kind of bs kind of a thing but knowing duncan like he really does eat and breathe this stuff like the whole idea behind the company was i think we can both do good work and we can treat people well because the visual effects industry has this terrible reputation of destroying its people companies going out of business it is a fraught arm of the entertainment industry.
0: That's fascinating that you just say that because I have a young film student and I was, and he's really bright and he's interested in post-production. And, you know, I told him out, that I was doing this podcast and and I said, I was like, have you ever considered getting to the VFX side of the business? He's like, yeah, but it's like, I heard they don't even let you take a break when you're working.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's funny because I, um, you know, Duncan worked at other companies prior to starting Outpost. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't, one of the things that I really like about the way that he approached the whole thing is that he didn't have the intention of founding a large visual effects company. Like he had this intention of, he relocated to Bournemouth, which is almost two hours outside of London and just wanted to start this small thing. I mean, that was the, that's why the company's called Outpost is because it was away from London and the, kind of like soho community where all the visual effects people gathered like he kind of took a very outsider's approach to it he's like i'm going to start doing this very modest thing and just see if it turns into anything um and i think the whole thing kind of happened a bit a bit by surprise but every step of the way he's kind of like done this check to see like can we scale and still be civilized because that is that really is that really is the challenge of any visual effects company is like can you retain your culture and also grow and so what we've what we've been finding is that like by putting management in place that really is like really invested in trying to do that when if that's the point if that's the if that's where you start every day from a management standpoint then maybe you can create something that is a little bit more civilized. You know, Outpost was the first company in the UK. You don't have to pay overtime, for instance, in the UK. There's nothing stipulating that you have to pay overtime. And Outpost was like, no, that's the right thing to do. We're going to pay overtime. And they were the first visual effects company in the UK to do that. That's really and cool. yeah, it is really cool. And it's like, it's it's the responsible thing to do. Anything else is exploitive, you know, and they they were the first to to acknowledge that and get on board with that. Um, and it's a kind of a thing, it's a very concrete thing to put your money where your mouth is. And I think for, for the rest of us, you know, I, I I can tell you that like, I spend more of my day trying to talk our teams into doing less because there is a, there's a, there's a cultural component within the industry of people who came up in visual effects that like, you are supposed to go until you bleed
0: it's funny, you kind of said something before you were like, oh, that sounds really corporate but but I'm telling you, it's real, and, and just knowing your background from being in the hardcore scene, like the punk rock thing, the DIY thing, like that was the most important thing is being authentic and being real. I mean, that was like the catchphrase, keeping it real. So, so I would imagine it, it makes sense that you're at that sort of company that kind of has those sort of ethos.
1: Yeah, because I, I think I've been really fortunate in my career to have had the experience of, you know, when, when I was, I worked at DNEC for almost five years and the, the experience of having worked there was, I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, the, the kind of work that that company was turning out at that time. And, um, and you know, when I, when I started there, the, the leadership that I worked with, like, it was really a, it was really a, a special place. And it just, it just grew so much. It got, it got so big. And, you know, I, and as it got to be as big as it did, I think I just, I, I you know, I, I just, it, the idea of going back to work at some, on something a little bit smaller, where I was a little bit more involved in the direction of the company, like that was, that was an opportunity that, like, that, I, that seemed really, really interesting. And Duncan, and there's a guy named Gez, who's the uh the COO like those guys just I don't know you know how you just get a feeling about people and you know like are these guys for real and that sort of a thing and um yeah I think they've they've made a lot of really good decisions and uh put the company in a really good place and it made it something that kind of completely aligned with you know my values and what I was trying to do I don't know it's been it's been a really good experience
0: nice man and sometimes it's not just at a vfx company about a company grinding i used to work at a major fortune 500 company i don't want to say which one but i'll give you a hint (laughs) (laughs) and um i was they had me working to the bone like sometimes i would be there till like two o'clock in the morning it's like what am i doing like why am i doing this to myself
1: I think there's also a thing, you know, I I think that there's a cultural thing, and this isn't specifically about visual effects, but there is a cultural thing to, hey, you know, people made me pay my dues. Now it's my turn to, you know, it's just the way it is. And so, you know, I can, you know, we're just going to be hard on people and, and that sort of a thing. And I, you know, there is a certain amount of paying your dues and, you know, you, you're coming up, there's a certain amount of like, putting in some hours and working really hard, but there's, but there's a line there somewhere where you can, as a manager, make very specific decisions about like, you know, where does this turn abusive? Like, where does this, where, like, there's a point at which like, you're not, if you're going to rest on, well, I'm giving this person an opportunity that opens the door to treat people really, really terribly. Like the fact of the matter is they're getting paid. To perform a role that is absolutely critical no matter how you know no matter how much skill is necessarily you know required for that kind of lower end position but that person is contributing and i think that i don't know by creating a company that values people at every level and for me to be responsible for upholding that like that that feels right you know that feels that feels like a good place to be
0: Well said. Well, Andy, I really appreciate having you on the podcast. Is there, is there any other things that you want to talk about, about sort of what's in the future that you're working on?
1: No, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're, the company's continuing to work on really, really interesting projects. We have some stuff that's, uh, I can't really talk about, but that's in an awarded that is kind of, as prestigious as anything that's getting made right now. And we're really, really excited about that. The The company's trajectory, the, the growth path that we're on is really exciting. You know, we have some challenges that come with that. Um, recruiting, certainly being one of them and being able to scale to accommodate the ambition of where the company sits right now. But um, I think the leadership is, is